Hi and welcome to RTB, the podcast from Northeast Ambulance Service. I'm Ria Kilmister Dawson, Operations Centre Trainer at NIAS, and in this episode, I speak to Nicola Howard, named Lead Professional for Safeguarding Children at NIAS. In our conversation, Nicola tells me about the support available to you from our safeguarding team, how we can help our colleagues as well as our patients, and all the multi-agency working that our safeguarding team does. So, hi Nicola, welcome to RTB. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's all right. So, we're going to do all things safeguarding today. Um, so, just um, first, just to kind of ease us into this a little bit, if you just give us a little bit of background on how you've come into safeguarding and what your role is within NIAS in the safeguarding team. Yeah, so I am a paediatric nurse by background, um, started my career over an acute paediatric assessment um, and then retrained as a health visitor. And safeguarding is um, quite um, heavy going in, in the world of health visiting and school nursing. Um, I joined NIAS from um, 2020 or February 2020, um, just before the pandemic. Um, and I think my interest in safeguarding started as a pre-registration nurse, sitting in child protection conferences and hearing the stories of children uh, and their increasing vulnerability throughout their years. And it's a really interesting role. Um, no two days are ever the same. Um, and I think that's what interests me. And we can have that opportunity to make, make real impacts in children's lives. So you're the kind of the child safeguarding lead here at NIAS, aren't you? Yeah, so I'm the, the named lead for children. We also have uh, Jane Stubbins, who's our named lead for adults. Um, and our team comprises of two advisors, one children, one adults, um, our safeguarding officer and our safeguarding admin. So we're a team of six, um, so quite a small team. And obviously we cover the whole of the, the NIAS footprint. So the safeguarding team that we have here at NIAS, obviously you cover the whole of the NIAS region and you're here to support everybody. But it's, it, I think kind of you, you're kind of like us, you're tucked away a little bit. So what does a typical day look like for you guys in the safeguarding team? I suppose it's quite similar to our operational crews and our staff in EOC. You just never know what's going to come through the door. Uh, and you start the day with the best of intentions of what you plan to get done. And then something comes in and it kind of upsets the apple cart a little bit. So we're kind of the point of contact for a lot of our external colleagues. So that could be police. It could be children's social care. It could be a safeguarding team within one of our acute hospitals. Or like just before we started this podcast, I was called by one of our operational crews who wanted a little bit of a advice and guidance so it can be really really varied um no as i said no two days are ever the same um we also deliver a kind of training to our operational crew so it's great to have that face-to-face contact with our staff but obviously as you said um we work agilely so therefore we're not kind of um kind of visible sometimes to our crews we absolutely absolutely are there in the background kind of if they ever need support and advice so you did mention there that obviously a big part of kind of what you do in your job is, you know, you're, you're liaising, liaising with police. And I know you speak to kind of social services quite a lot. Um, so when you represent in the trust, can you kind of just give us a little bit of background on what you do there? Like what's your responsibility and with our partner agencies as well? Yeah, so there's a, a few processes that run that are what we call statutory processes, i.e. We, we have to engage with them. So, for example, from a children's perspective, um, kind of the safeguarding team represent the trust at any unexpected child deaths or any incidents that happen where children are subject to harm or are demonstrating kind of risky behaviours. And our role really is to represent 
represent the kind of the, the entirety of the contact that we have with that young person or that adult kind of with our service so we could be representing kind of 111 calls or 999 ambulance attendances so we give them kind of a good overview of our level of involvement we are also then able to get information back from our external agencies so it may be that we get information related to their police history or their social circumstances and that helps us to inform sometimes the care that we give so often we can kind of compile documents or flags that give our crews a little bit more of an indication around what's going on in that family or any potential risks or actually if they're likely to demonstrate behaviors based on trauma and things like that so we are often kind of given a lot of information out, but getting a lot of really pertinent and invaluable information back into the service as well. Unfortunate part about child safeguarding, you mentioned that word there, and I just picked that up, that trauma word. So unfortunate part about it, safeguarding is very, very often related to some not very nice things that are happening to patients in our region. Is it part of your role as well to kind of provide support to colleagues who are experiencing or um, who are kind of um, going to attend instance where that sort of things happened how do you do, do like how do you provide that support just for the colleagues as well absolutely I think um, if we look back at the last 12 months we've had a really particularly challenging 12 months in the world of safeguarding children I don't think you can't kind of open the press or, or look at news streams not to see kind of either child deaths or we've had kind of some fatal stabbings in the region as well which is really unusual and absolutely appreciate for our staff who are either handling that call or for our dispatch colleagues trying to get ambulances to incidents really quickly and then our frontline paramedic CCA crews going out there and dealing with it. It is really traumatic and often it's not immediately after the event but it can be some days, weeks or months after where something triggers and staff may find themselves wanting to access that additional support. And we always kind of will signpost to things like our trim um, or occupational health but from a safeguarding perspective we do offer safeguarding supervision and supervision sometimes sounds like quite a negative word, like we're going to tell you what you should have done or could have done. But actually, it's a safe space to sit back, take some time and reflect, mm-hmm. um, reflect on what happened, how it made you feel, um, trying to come to kind of some sort of understanding around what happened um, and to make sense of what often is quite a senseless situation Um, and then take away any actions that we may identify from that so it may be actions for the safeguarding team in terms of any additional training that we need to provide or it may be actions for us to feed something back to an external agency but from the staff that I know who have engaged with that, they found it a really positive process. Um, so we are in the process of, um, we've rewritten our safeguard supervision policy. We're just waiting for it to go through our policy review group and then it will be open um, for staff to, to be able to look at what the offer is. It can be informal, it can be structured and it's open to absolutely anybody within our organisation. It doesn't have to be just if you've had face-to-face contact because actually we're all part of a, a really complex system and we play out individual roles in, in doing that so anybody can access safeguard and supervision and they would just drop us an email via our EDG safeguard team email to request that support and we can arrange that for them. Amazing so obviously my, my background's in call handling so I have taken those calls and I have put those safeguards in where I've heard some pretty horrendous stuff on the other end of the phone and um, so can you just talk us through a little bit about kind of the process that you have from that initial kind of safeguarding that comes through to you either from the the health advisor or from the road crew and 
kind of what happens from kind of start to finish? Yeah, so um, when the crews make a safeguarding referral, it may be that it triggers another process. So we send a notification to the local authority around either a serious incident or a child death or a domestic dispute. And we can be um, invited at that point to either a meeting or to share additional information. What we do at that point is start to gather as much information as possible. So that might be listening to 999 call audios or 111 call audios. It may be reaching out to our um, our paramedic workforce or CCAs and asking for statements. It's around trying to gather as much information around that situation as possible because what we're looking to do is create a, a really thorough picture of the lived experience for that individual um, so that we can look at where the risks potentially are lying. Um, staff can often, if they see an email from Safeguard and start to wonder, oh God, what, what's happened? What's going on? And I can completely understand that. Nobody wants to be involved in like a really traumatic or a serious Safeguard incident, but it very much is around mm-hmm. us finding that information um, so that we can represent the trust um often we'll email staff just to say what a great job they've done um our call handling staff are amazing we listen to so many 999 calls where they take hysterical individuals and they calm them and they direct them often through cpr or first aid advice and they are amazing at what they do um so often sometimes we'll just reach out and say either that referral was really great really advocated for that patient or actually you've done an amazing job with that call so sometimes it's just about giving that feedback as well and I know that's appreciated I've had I've been on that side of it and it really is appreciated because we don't really hear really what goes on afterwards we just put it in and watch it go and then we just kind of take the next call and that's such a hard bit of our job isn't it and I think um, I think within safeguarding we talk about professional curiosity for me it's about being professionally quite nosy I like to know the full ins and outs of what's going on with patients and their lives because only then can we make really informed decisions but for our staff they deal with the situation and they then have to move on really quickly with those unknown what ifs and that's really tough but if there ever is a situation where a staff member is kind of faced with a situation and they're thinking what happened to that patient and it's from a safeguard perspective just pick up the phone give us a call and we can ask our colleagues either over in the acute sector or we can tell them what the outcome was because sometimes it just helps to close that door because um, it's not nice dealing with the what ifs and what happened and what next um, and it's sometimes we give you a positive outcome um, which can help to kind of reassure staff that they've done the right thing so always happy to kind of pick up the phone and, and have a conversation with staff if they're if they're worried about what happened next that's really good to know actually I think you'll get a lot more people will uh, will be taking you up on that offer now you've said it on the podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> so obviously like from what you've said there from all the people you've mentioned we know and I know as well from training is that safeguarding is for everybody it is you know safeguarding is not just uh, for our patients it's everyone's responsibility and you should be looking at the whole thing um so what I'm getting at here is um if you could talk a little bit about what it's what it can be like to have to put safeguarding a little bit closer to home so if we have colleagues that are working within the service where there may be actually a safeguarding issue with them so it's not a patient it's someone kind of within our own little NIAS family what what's kind of the process and What's the support that you offer for people that will be having like those difficult circumstances that are happening either in their own home or at work? Absolutely. And I think as a safeguarding team, 
primarily we are here to safeguard our patients but also it's really important that our staff feel safe um, because staff who feel safe are able to perform better at work and if they're feeling unsafe either at work or at home that can really impact on everyday kind of life Um, we absolutely know that some of our staff um, home isn't a safe space for them and they may be experiencing things like domestic abuse in their personal life Um, and we do have domestic abuse champions within the organisation so there's Tracy Varty who's our safeguarding officer or our named lead for safeguarding adults Jane Stubbins who is there to provide that advice and support we can signpost to services both internally and externally but look at safety planning as well so staff feel kind of safer um, in their day-to-day lives not only that but when staff are within work it's really important that they feel safe Um, and the safeguarding team have done a lot of work with our staff experience team around sexual safety around staff feeling able to come to work and be free from sexual harassment or or inappropriate behaviours. But if staff do have any concerns, either around issues that are going on in their personal life or issues that are happening at work that's making them feel unsafe, they can reach out to the safeguarding team. Either myself or Jane Stubbins are always at the end of the phone and we can signpost and support from there because it's really important that our staff are able to, to come to work and feel safe or feel that they have a place to go to to have those discussions. Um, and it's sometimes easier to speak to somebody you know less well than speak to somebody that you may potentially see on a day-to-day basis. Um, everything that happens is is confidential unless we feel you're at risk of kind of significant harm and we may have to share that with either an operational line manager. But usually we will tell you that we have to do that be kind of as part of that discussion. But if we don't have that imminent risk of, of safety, then everything you tell us is, is treated confidentially. So just kind of going on from that, if you, um, for example, if, you know, if you've got road staff, you've got someone who is really concerned about their crewmate, this can be a really difficult conversation for someone to have um, with someone that they do know well. Obviously, you said that it can be easier to speak to someone in safeguarding because you don't see them every day. If you kind of are wanting to approach that conversation with someone that you do know at work as a colleague or if you feel like that they are at risk and you need to put in a safeguarding for them, what advice would you give to like our wider NIAS family, our colleagues of how to approach that situation and what's the best way to do it? I think often we're scared of asking the question in case something comes back and we don't know how to deal with it. But often just asking that question, are you feeling safe? what can we can what can I do to help you feel a little bit safer Um, asking that open question can sometimes open the door to that staff member and they may disclose something to you but it doesn't mean that you have to know all the answers and how to deal with that there are ourselves within the safeguarding team who are here to provide you that guidance advice and support Um, so when you come to us and tell us what's going on we'll be able to then look at how do we best approach this in a really sensitive way for that staff member, but also ensuring their safety. So sometimes we'll have a kind of a discussion with that person's kind of operational line manager, somebody who is trusted. And this is all done really confidentially to make sure we can best support that person. And so ultimately we can keep them safe. But I absolutely appreciate from a staff perspective, having that conversation with a colleague, um, can be really daunting um, and can leave you feeling quite vulnerable. 
But I'd always say kind of if you've got those niggling concerns, trust your professional instincts because usually they're quite bang on the money. So ask that question, what's going on? I'm a bit concerned about you. Are you feeling safe? Um, I'm a bit worried about you. Is there something that we can do to make things better? Um, and if you're really concerned, come and have a confidential conversation with us and we'll, we can see what we can do to best support you and that person. How do, how do you as a team kind of make sure that we are, as NIAS, we're always staying up to date with all the latest practices and developments like um communicating that with the rest of of nias like how how do you kind of go about that what's your process safeguard is an evolving kind of cycle it never stays the same um and we know that we've got things like um especially with adolescents experience and harm outside of the family home in different ways things like criminal exploitation sexual exploitation um, and increase in peer-on-peer violence so as a team we often attend kind of multi-agency meetings that look at kind of the evolving picture of what's going on in the environment around us and we get information and intelligence from police that help us to aid that as well so we incorporate that into our statutory mandatory training program so all of the training that we now do within the ass is developed which has real life case examples in there it is ambulance specific because the one thing i found coming into the world of ambulance services it's very different from acute trusts it's very different from a community-based kind of work as well it's almost a bit of a different beast in itself so we need to make sure our staff have examples live examples where they can put themselves in that situation and see themselves in it so that's why we really advocate for the use of live training examples that can sometimes be really emotive and we have had staff who come to training and they've seen an example of something they've been to um, and often they're sitting there thinking oh actually I did a really good job because they're telling us in training we did a really good job because our staff really do uh, like nine times out of ten our staff do amazingly well that one time out of ten it may just have been that we've missed an opportunity at some point for a referral that's all about learning um, because safeguarding is never black or white it's often the gray area in between where you're having to make really complex decision making in a really uncontrolled environment I absolutely don't envy our, our frontline crews. I don't think I could do it. Um, every time I've been in kind of operational patient facing, it's often been in quite a controlled environment, either a hospital environment or as a health visitor going into somebody's home with a newborn baby. Um, so actually for our crews who go to some really significant kind of incidents, whether that's domestic homicides, unexpected child deaths, or kind of where somebody has harmed somebody else, you're dealing with a complex environment often really emotive and having to think on your feet so as I said our crews do an amazing job our referrals the, the detail in our referrals is is brilliant um, and we often go to meetings and hear back from our external colleagues around kind of how well they think our crews have done the exceptional level of care they've delivered how sensitively they've handled really emotive situations so I think that's the message I want our crews to take away from this is that you are doing a really good job keep doing what you're doing um, and if you do have those really difficult ones where you're just not sure drop us a message um, drop us a call um, and let us help you and guide you in in those complex processes so obviously there's a lot of multi-agency work that's going on as well 
which I don't think people realise how much multi-agency work is going on in safeguarding. You just, you talk to everybody, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, our our kind of contacts list is quite extensive. Um, so that's often what helps us to, to come to kind of solutions for crews is because we know who to call because it's our bread and butter. It's what we deal with day to day. So often, uh, for example, I had a crew who had a, a young person that their main carer had been taken to hospital. They'd been on scene for some time and couldn't find anybody to look after this look after this child. Within 20 minutes of me hounding the local authority, we had a plan in place and that young person was sorted. And it's because we know how the process works. We know how the system works. So we're able to kind of smooth that, kind of navigate that process a little bit easier. So we're always happy to support in any way we can. Obviously, we're mon- typically Monday to Friday. Um, so it's a bit more difficult out of hours, but that's when I would normally tell crews to to seek advice from a kind of a senior manager on call to help them to navigate that process if they're dealing with something fairly complex. Like you said, howding there, I'm going to say that you were very persuasive. That's what I'm going to say. You were persuasively (laughs) arguing the case of the young person. I advocate for our crews. I think sometimes when you say we've got an ambulance off the road who cannot respond to a category one life or death situation because they're essentially babysitting, can you sort something out ASAP? That tends to make them kind of think, oh, actually, we do. We do need to get something sorted here. Um, So it's sometimes the way we word things um, and reinforce to them that actually some of the things that we deal with is life and death. So we do need a crew kind of freed up as soon as possible, really. Can you give us like a little sneaky peek of what might be going on safeguarding wise over the next 12 months or so? What developments have you guys got in? So you mentioned there that you were doing the um, work on sexual safety. Um, is there anything else that you've kind of got in the pipeline up and coming? I think the, the major change our crews will have seen recently is is the, the use of um, iPads to do their own referrals. And what I would say is <laughs> I appreciate that hasn't been without its challenges. Um, sometimes our technology isn't on our side. Um, we are in the process of simplifying those forms Um, there is some repetition in there that we wish to get rid of Um, so we're working with our supplier Ulysses to do that um, and to make it a little bit more streamlined Um, going forward we'd love for Cleric to talk to Ulysses so that we could transfer information across Um, it would be great if I could wave a magic wand but unfortunately as we know IT systems often don't talk to each other um, and there needs to be something done in between in terms of development to enable that. We have been working with our national colleagues as well to look at how we could potentially embed safeguarding within Cleric um, because that would be just the gold standard wouldn't it? Just to click a button and it automatically generate if it's for that patient. So there has been kind of discussions around that. We are trying to push that in that direction but we are an extremely busy team at the moment so often kind of things like that do take a little bit of a backseat at times but hopefully the simplification to the referral forms will be done quite imminently um, and crew should hopefully start to see the benefit of that but as I said we've seen such kind of improvements in terms of the quality of our referrals and the detail in them as well which means the local authority don't have to come back to us to ask for that so what I would say to crews is put as much information in there as you can really paint that picture of what that life is like for that person um, because that's our opportunity to advocate for that patient and make sure that we get them the help they need as quickly as possible Um, but we're always open to staff who want to know a little bit more about safeguarding to come and spend a day with us spend a day in the crazy world of safeguarding see what we do because I think I hear that a lot from staff that they don't actually know what we do day to day they think it's a lot around referrals and it's absolutely not Um, we have very little to do with that aspect it's everything that comes after that in terms of court or meetings or training 
So if you have an interest in safeguarding, come and spend the day with us. Come and see what it's like on the other end um, and just experience kind of the external work that we do um, and the work that we do with police and the local authority and community-based services Um, because certainly eye-opening I think when people come and see just the the level of information requests and the communication that we get from our external agencies so the door is always open for for our staff to come and and come and share a bit of their safeguarding world with us. So very finally Nicola what would be your top tips for someone who is interested in getting into safeguarding not just in terms of experience but in terms of like personal attributes or anything like forewarned is forearmed as I always say yeah what would your top tips be for anyone who wants to go into the role that you do or into adult safeguarding I think you kind of always know if you've got that kind of spidey sense I would call it that kind of something's not quite right here I've got a professional gut instinct that there's something not quite right and I think that professional curiosity so i.e being a bit curious, being a bit nosy, wanting to know what's going on is a real good skill when it comes to safeguarding. And sometimes you have to be really tenacious because we do sometimes get back, like push back from our local authority and we have to stand our ground and say, actually, no, we don't feel that's right and we don't feel that's protecting our patient. So having that professional curiosity, being able to be resilient, I think obviously we deal with quite emotive situations and we as a team are very supportive of one another and supportive of our own emotional resilience. Um, But I think if anybody's ever applying for jobs like that, um, one thing I would say is just make sure you kind of evidence the essential criteria because often we get applications from, from members of our internal staff which look great. We think you've got loads of experience, but... We just don't evidence that in in the application form, so then we can't shortlist. So if anybody ever has kind of wants to get into something or there's a job out there that they really want, like seek that advice from from people who go through the shortlisting process. Um, speak to people in that that area. Get a real understanding of of what it's really like to be in there um, in that job, and that will give you kind of the best chance to to go in there and, and demonstrate your skills and knowledge and your understanding of the role. Thank you so much for joining me today, um, Nicola. I've learned so much about safeguarding that I didn't know, and um, it is so interesting just to hear from a perspective of someone who's doing it on a on a daily basis. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to RTB. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please like, review and subscribe the show in your podcast app. And if you've got time, why not listen to our previous episodes? If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard on RTB, or if you want to suggest a topic for us to cover in a future episode, you can email us at publicrelations at neas.nhs.uk. 